Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Thick Focus podcast, Macro Matters edition. Today, we're going to be once again talking about interest rate strategy globally. In particular, we're going to focus on central bank balance sheets and their assets. I'm Ira Jersey, the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And with me from across the Atlantic Ocean is Hugh Worthington. He is our European rate strategist and also Angelo Monolatos, who covers Canada rates from a strategy perspective. So let, let me start quickly talking about the U.S. and, and what the Federal Reserve um, kind of pre-announced, if you will, in the minutes from the December meeting. And that is that they do intend to uh, start running off their balance sheet. So stopping uh, QE will will will, uh, will likely be in March, although there is the non-trivial chance that they can stop at their January meeting. But, but we do think that they'll wait until March. And then very soon after the first hike, they've said that they're going to start to run off their balance sheet and reduce it. Now, the question is how they will do that. There's a variety of different ways that the Fed could reduce its balance sheet. It's bought uh, many trillions of dollars since the uh, COVID crisis began, including most recently throughout most of uh, the year of 2021. They purchased about $120 billion a month in assets and treasury securities and and mortgage-backed securities. Um, when they last did quantitative uh, quantitative tightening uh, or ran off their balance sheet back in 2017 and 18, they put caps on how much they would allow to run off. They started with very small caps and increased those caps over time. Uh, eventually, that led to September 2019 when they um, when the reserve balances, bank reserve balances, shrunk to such a degree that there was some overnight and daytime liquidity issues at some financial institutions causing repurchase agreement rates to skyrocket toward 9% for a couple of small trades. Um, that got the, uh, the the attention of a lot of people within both the financial community as well as the central bank. Um, and subsequently, the, the Federal Reserve has created additional programs that um, should work to mitigate some of those kind of risks to spiking uh, the repo, uh, repo rate once the Fed does shrink its balance sheet uh, to such a degree where um, the amount of excess reserves is not enough to keep uh, to keep enough liquidity in the financial sector. And that in particular is something called the standing repurchase agreement facility. So we're not as concerned once the Fed reduces its balance sheet by three, four trillion dollars and they reach that right kind of reserve tipping point uh, because we'll know that uh, that reserve demand is starting to increase when we see that standing repo facility start to have some meaningful uh, um some meaningful activity in it. And once it has, you know, 10, 20, 30 billion dollars, the Federal Reserve at that point should uh, should, should very soon thereafter stop reducing its balance sheet. So that's the end state. How do, how do we get there to that end state, though? Well, I think first, the, the Federal Reserve is obviously going to um, going to probably cap the amount that it's going to run off its balance sheet. But unlike 2017, where they started small and got large, we think that they'll start relatively big, basically by allowing um, most of their treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities 
that uh, that that mature in any given month run off their balance sheet. Um, we we think that the a cap of somewhere like 90 billion, maybe it's 100 billion, but you know somewhere around that number should be enough to kind of ease the market's concerns that there'll be too much supply, effective supply going back into the hands of the public every month, and at the same time very rapidly reduce the amount of excess liquidity that has built up uh, in the market. That excess liquidity, we we proxy that by looking at the reverse repurchase agreement facility, which is you know about 1.5 trillion dollars as we record this podcast on the uh, on the 13th of, of January. 2022. And and uh, until that uh, reverse repo facility gets to zero, I would argue that the Federal Reserve is not uh, what won't effectively be tightening monetary policy by reducing its balance sheet. So, um, so, so that's one reason why I think that they'll want to cut reasonably quickly. Um, there's other things that the Fed can do to get those excess reserve uh, reserve balances down, and that's that they can allow things like treasury bills. They own a little over $300 billion of treasury bills. They could allow that to run off very quickly. And in fact, there, there are some other uh, houses across the street that are suggesting that maybe the Fed will do that in order to reduce that liquidity very quickly. Um, I suspect that they'll be a little bit more cautious than that, at least as an initial uh, as they initially start uh, start to run off their balance sheet and maybe say that they're going to you know do 60 billion dollars of of coupon treasuries 30 up to 30 or 40 billion dollars of mortgages and then maybe 10 billion dollars or or 20 billion dollars of T bills every month as opposed to having it all basically have a massive supply jump of treasury bills have to hit the market uh, very quickly so so I do think that regardless of of um, you know what they want to do um, they will have some type of cap on all of the assets that they run off. What that means for the from a market perspective is that during those months, the Treasury Department will have to turn around and issue more debt to the public. The Federal Reserve won't be reinvesting uh, their assets, uh, it, you know, back into Treasury securities, which effectively means that investors need to um, need, need to absorb that that extra supply. And uh, as that occurs, the question is, what happens to the market? The market has been well aware of this. The market, I think, in part has uh, you've seen a significant sell off from the beginning of the year, in part in anticipation that the Fed will start runoff. But I think once they do run off, you will see yields uh, move a little bit higher. Um, people have suggested that maybe it's a curve steepener. I, I very much doubt that. I think that the Treasury Department will uh, will increase issuance throughout the curve. You know, maybe not quite in a duration neutral fashion. So they might actually issue a little bit more duration. But I think ultimately the uh, the expectations for how quickly the Fed's going to increase the Fed funds rate will ultimately um, uh, overwhelm the market and and cause the curve to at least stay where more or less where it is, if not flatten a little bit, as opposed to any significant steepening because of uh, a modest increase in supply every month in the back end. Um, so, so that's the Fed view, and we can certainly you know, talk a little bit more about that. But, but the Federal Reserve is not the only central bank. Almost every major central bank around the world has been doing some form of quantitative easing. So I'd like to turn things over to Hugh Worthington to maybe describe a little bit about what's going on in Europe and, and his expectations um, for how, firstly, the ECB is, is likely to uh, deal with their balance sheet over the course of the year as the Fed starts to run off its portfolio. Hugh. Over to you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, the uh, the ECB actually is um, is isn't as, as hawkish as the as the Fed or the Bank of England for that matter. Um, and and actually they they are going to be carrying on QE. 
pretty much the whole of this year and probably uh, into next as well. They've, they've basically, but how they, what they will be doing is they'll be reducing the pace. So pandemic QE will stop as scheduled in March. And that's been running along with the regular QE program, which has been sort of sitting there underneath as well buying around between 80 and 100 billion uh, euros of, of assets every month really since since the crisis began but that the, the pandemic qe will finish at the end of march so regular qe is going to be relied on now that usually runs actually at around 20 billion euros a month um, but that will be boosted for the second quarter <clears throat> to up to 40 billion euros and then it'll drop away to that 20 billion euros thereafter now what does that mean for government bonds uh, roughly speaking government bond purchases because QEs in Europe is in all sorts of things as well, has been running at sort of 60, 70 billion euros in 2021. So that's going to fall um, in, in Q2 to, you think, probably around 28 to 30 billion euros. And the second half of the year onwards, um, it'll, it'll fall to around 14 to 15 billion euros a month. So that's, that's a pretty big fall. But the balance sheet will, steep, will still keep going up. And they've said that they're not going to stop QE until they start to put rates up. Um, and rates at the moment, the markets aren't expecting them to see a, a hike in, in, in policy rates probably until mid-2023. And that's um, certainly something which the ECB seems happy with. And actually they've pretty much promised that they won't do anything in terms of, of, uh, of, of hiking uh, rates in, in 2022 whatsoever. So that, that balance sheet is going to continue rising in Europe probably until mid-2023. Thereafter, however, the ECB, they've said that they're going to keep reinvesting the Bruce so that they won't start to roll their balance sheet off um, until a significant time after those policy rates rise. And, and that is really, I think, probably not in a matter of months, it's probably years. So we're probably you know, years away from the ECB balance sheet starting to, to, to shrink again. Gilts are a completely different uh, prospect, however. The Bank of England's already stopped doing QE, stopped about a month ago, actually. Um, and they've told us that actually they, when, when bank rate gets to 0.5%, at that point, they will stop reinvesting. The, the gilts they hold. They hold about £875 billion of, of gilts. That's about sort of slightly over 40% of the total gilt market. Um, but they, they, roughly speaking, they hold about £35 billion of, of, of gilts redeeming in 2022. Now, the, this whole idea of when they start reinvesting is important because currently markets expect them to, well, they think there's about an 85% chance that they'll hit that 0.5%. Uh, a limit in February, in early February, and that means that of that 35 billion that's roughly coming due, 28 billion pounds of it, which falls due in March, wouldn't be reinvested. Now, that, along with other gilt reinvestments uh, later in the year, would be roughly, roughly speaking, double the amount of net supply that we'll see in gilts uh, in 2022. And, and as Iris has pointed out, that's got to be taken down by the market, and and that you know they, they probably will demand high yields. Thereafter, however, the bank have also said to us that they would actually consider selling gilts outright within the portfolio when bank rate hits one percent and at the moment the market expects that to happen by august so that could also that would possibly dramatically increase the amount of gilts that they would sell how many would they sell i think they'd actually go very carefully indeed to start with and i suspect that you know mark carney said many a long time ago that he thought um 100 basis points of of, of easing was delivered by 120 billion of qe so maybe they'd try 30 billion of qe to start with uh, Q, sorry quantitative tightening to start with if it if, if we were to get rates as high as one percent by march and i think they'd take it pretty easily you're probably talking about five billion pounds a month but again that would just increase that net supply need you know, you know even more that the market would have to take down so that would put pretty bit more pressure on rates you know as we moved into the latter part of 2022 in, in the uk 
Great. Thanks very much to you. And maybe we can have a little discussion uh, in a moment. But first, I want to bring in Angela Monolatos to talk a little bit about Canada and about what the Bank of Canada may do, because, you know, unlike Europe, um, the Bank of Canada seems poised to uh, hike very soon and also maybe do some uh, have some balance sheet action. Angela, what, what's your view on Canada right now as far as the balance sheet is concerned? Hey, Ira, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so the Bank of Canada looks poised to start its normalization cycle um, uh, relatively quickly at some point in uh, 2022. And uh, we haven't gotten a lot on their balance sheet since since they uh, went into the reinvestment phase of QE, which in uh, Federal Reserve terms, it's kind of where we would be after Fed taper ends, where the balance sheet stays uh, or the amount of treasuries are in uh, my case, the government of Canada bonds outstanding that the bank uh, holds stay constant. So they've been at that uh, phase since November 1st. And the, the guidance they have given us is that they will stay at that phase at least until the first hike. So that makes us think that soon thereafter, they're going to, um, we, we believe that they're going to passively uh, unwind some of their uh, bank of Canada, uh, government of Canada bonds. And <clears throat> so how much do they own? They own 425 uh, billion of government of Canada bonds. That's around 43% of the bond market. And then the question becomes, oh, uh, the fiscal year actually lines up as a nice uh, case, uh, case study that we can talk about during this, this call actually, because the fiscal year starts in April, ends in uh, March. So that 2022, 2023 fiscal year, they actually have uh, 85 billion of uh, maturities that they hold on their balance sheet. And so what they have been doing in this reinvestment phase, which has been a mix of both primary and secondary market issuance is around four to 5 billion of purchases a month to try to equal out maturities over a, a longer, um, a time period that isn't just month to month, but rather over a several month uh, time period, they're trying to smooth, uh, smooth the way they do it. So they went from purchasing around 13% at uh, each uh, Government of Canada bond auction to purchasing under 8%. So if they were to maintain that purchase base, given our outlook for um, gross bond supply in 2022-2023 and a, a start of runoff right in the beginning of the fiscal year, that could mean around $65 billion of Government of Canada bonds actually roll off of the central bank balance sheet in the 2022-2023 fiscal year. And as a percent of their portfolio, that's, yeah, that's around 15% of their portfolio. So what one of the things that that has always surprised me about this round of quantitative easing is that when you look at particularly England and Canada, um, you know, owning 40, 40 plus percent of the market, you know, it seems like it would have a pretty meaningful effect on um uh, you know, on the market and, and certainly on market pricing. Whereas in the U.S., you know, clearly we've we've had, you know, quantitative easing certainly has had some effect on pricing. But after last March, the the share of Fed ownership of the Treasury market only went up from around 27 to 29 percent, right? So it only went up about 2 percent, maybe 2.5 um, percent over over more than a year and a half. Um, but but in your markets, it was a little bit bigger. So, so Angela, I'll start with you. You know, how much... Um, how much market uh, effect do you think that the, uh, the that the BOC's purchases have had on uh, you know on the on the government of Canada bonds? Yeah, so I think with the way the market expanded, I think uh, there is there's a lot of there's a lot of healthy um, uh, foreign demand. We see foreign demand uh, 
uh, statistics every every month. We see them every quarter, and they, they are uh, quite robust. In fact, over the QE period, foreign foreign demand went up uh, 42 uh, billion dollars uh, over that period. So we have seen really uh, robust uh, foreign demand in the in the QE period, um, and we have seen that the bond market has been you know moving pretty much in line with uh, rates here in the U.S. So uh, it was with the amount of stimulus uh, that was put into the market by by the government it, uh, probably QE was probably necessary and some work uh, through the Bank of Canada actually showed that the the net effect of QE on the market was much even though it was such massive in scale from 15% to 43%, so much larger than the numbers uh, you gave us, the actual effect on the market was uh, under a, just a handful of basis points uh, in their study. And uh, that looks pretty consistent. However, that said, when you own such a large uh, swaths of the market, that does that could lead to some uh, liquidity issues and some sourcing issues for bonds. And that'll be something, and market function will be something that they'll take uh, keep close attention to as they unwind um, this portfolio. Hugh, do you see something similar in in the UK? Or, um, you know, obviously it's a very mature market, right? Very first central bank in the world. So so clearly they have a significant amount of experience in in, in general in dealing with any liquidity issues. But, but, you know, what was the market pricing impact and how concerned do you think that the Bank of England is for with liquidity as they start to unwind the balance sheet? Well, I think the one thing I will say, first of all, is that the, the, the gilt market benefits from a long duration. I mean, I think they're the... the duration of the market is about 15 years. So the actual number of bonds falling due in the next few years are, are isn't extraordinarily high. You're talking about, like I say, 35 billion that they hold this year, about the same next year, 30 in 2024. doesn't really sort of ramp up until you get into 2025 when they've got about 55 billion pounds of, of, of gilts that they hold redeeming. So they, there is a benefit for them. There's no doubt about that. But equally, I think they, they've never, they, they haven't uh, um, done this before. They haven't actually started, stopped, uh, you know, uh, reinvesting. And they certainly haven't started selling. So I think it will be very much sort of baby steps and, and, and careful as she goes, to, to be perfectly honest, because they don't want to see some sort of um, accident in the market. Although, again, Angela made the very good point that foreign demand has been good in Canada. Foreign demand has been excellent in gilts as well. And you have people like in particular Japanese investors returning to the gilt market who they, they sort of been a bit wary of it since 2016 um but you know the, the actual foreign demand that we've seen in the last few years with those high yields on offer versus in particular what's what's on offer in, in europe um that, that has that has enticed a lot of people into the gilt market and i think that that's what they would hope would be um you know possibly that that key marginal bar that they'd see again uh as as they withdrew the stimulus so it's interesting in the U.S., even though you know Canada and, and the U.K. have had pretty robust foreign demand, demand from uh, foreigners in the U.S. has actually been very spotty. Like it's been up and down. Yeah, um, you know, you've had some months when there's been significant buying, and then other months when uh, when foreigners have been out of the market. Um, that that's been very true, particularly of private foreign investors in the U.S. market, because I, I think in large part because people are worried that the Fed hiking and and starting runoff is going to be negative negative on um, on the treasury market and on returns. So so they're a little bit more wary to take a lot of duration risk, although we have seen an increase, interestingly, over the last couple of uh, couple of months that we have data for in uh, foreign official demand picking up. So, um, you know, these are central banks, you know, FX reserve managers and, and the like. And I think maybe the strength of the dollar might have something to do with that. Um, or, or maybe they, because the dollar is strong, or, or they're flushing the dollar to be a little bit stronger. Um, but, but 
but in part, I, I think that that also represents the fact that they're not necessarily defending their own currencies um, against the dollar as much at, at the moment, whereas they had uh, actually been been sellers of treasuries and, and dollars um, early in the crisis in order to raise cash for their their home economies. Um, so, you know, we will have much more about this next week. We're going to be talking about uh, FX strategy and the outlook for the dollar for uh, 2022, um, as well as obviously other G10 currencies with Audrey Child Friedman. Um, and then uh, the, the following week, we'll, uh, Angelo and I will be back to talk about the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve meeting at the end of January. January, where we probably will get some pretty interesting information and who knows, maybe there'll be some surprises there as well. Uh, so with that, uh, on behalf of Hugh Worthington and Angela Manolatos, I've been Ira Jersey. We appreciate you listening to this edition of the FIC Focus podcast, The Macro Matters 